We're turning to the 14th Psalm, and we'll read the seven verses that are here. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Amen. And may the Lord bless uh, the reading of this uh, particular psalm. The psalm that we have then before us this evening is known uh, mainly because of the first verse. It is a verse that typically reminds us of the atheist, the one who rejects any idea or thought that there is a God in heaven. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And how many today are foolish? How many today have not looked upon the book of nature, the creation of God, God's revelation in nature, and realized that there must be a God? They have said there is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. And the word of God says they're fools. They're fools for not understanding this, for not realizing this. And in this psalm this evening, There are a number of opinions as to its origin. Uh, There are some who say that it was penned when Saul persecuted David or when Absalom uh, rebelled against David. Uh, This is mere speculation, of course, uh, because we don't actually know when it was penned. Uh, But we know it was David who wrote this psalm. And the apostle himself, the apostle Paul, makes a reference to the teaching of this psalm in the book of Romans in chapter 3. And... Uh, As a commentator said, we can understand that this psalm in general speaks of the depravity of human nature, the sinfulness of the sin we were conceived and born in, and the deplorable corruption of a great part of mankind, even of the world that lies in wickedness. The Psalm 53 is uh, basically a duplicate of Psalm 14 with a few uh, small exceptions. And when we uh, think of this psalm. The curse of God upon the ungodly puts them in anxiety. They're like scattered bones. The Lord has defeated and disgraced all those that oppose him, and he will do that and continue to do so. Matthew Henry said, if we apply our hearts as Solomon did to search out the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness, these verses will assist us in the search and will show us that sin is exceedingly simple. And as the people of God, when we come to a psalm such as this, we should read it and understand that in the sight of God, sin is 
exceedingly wicked. Sin is wrong in the sight of God. And as the Lord's people, we need to have a view of sin that is parallel to God's view of sin. Yes, God is holy and righteous and pure and his view of sin will always be superior to our view. Uh, We uh, are not righteous as God is perfectly righteous. Uh, But we need to learn from his word and his truth to see sin as he sees it. And if we see and understand sin as God understands sin and teaches us what sin is, then that enables us in sanctification by the help of the Spirit to forsake that sin, to see it as God sees it, to see it as wicked. And of course, we have here those who are filthy, those who are workers of iniquity, those who are against the God of heaven, those who deny God. They're corrupt. They've done abominable things. And when we come to this psalm this evening, I want us to consider then depravity and deliverance. Depravity and deliverance. In the words of this psalm, we certainly see depravity. And we see David's description of depravity. Verses 1 to 3 that we read together, we see that sin is a disease. And sin has infected all mankind. In recent days and years, we've been worried about a disease that can infect all mankind. Uh, But yet, there's a greater disease that governments and the individual man and woman are not so concerned about, the disease of sin. And sin has infected all mankind. Sin is the reason, as we saw in the Lord's Day, why Christ was lifted up to redeem a people unto himself. And sin is a disease that attacks the honor of God. And we see this in the verse 1. The word fool refers to someone who is stupid, someone who is wicked, someone who is vile, someone who is foolish. We can look around and see widespread atheism around us. uh, And we often say there are many today who don't believe in God. If you go into Wikipedia and you bring up various cities or nations, and nations especially, you can see the demographics, how many people lived in that city in 1901 and 2001 and 2021. It's interesting. But then they can often delve into religion. And often there is that category of those who have no faith, those who don't believe, those who are atheists. And it is a growing percentage of individuals. But yet, this has always been the case in humanity where there are those who reject any concept of God. And in David's day, there were fools who said, there is no God. There is no God. And when we think of that word God there, it is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's a name of God that's associated with creation. And the wicked man is crying out, there is no creator. There's no judge of mankind. There is no one who is on the throne as it were, governing this world, sustaining this world, having authority over this world. And so atheism ignores God's natural revelation and God's special revelation. And the honor of God is attacked as well when men seek to try to change who God is. Either wipe him from existence or change his attributes and his perfections and his word to do things that attack the existence of God that undermine the scriptures that God has given. We can think of the 
idea of God in this world, if you went on to Google and uh, you typed in you know, images of God or you typed in cartoons of God, I don't suggest you do that. And I haven't done that. But if you did, you can imagine what will come up. Man's mockery. Man's blasphemy against the God of heaven. Man's jokes about this father figure in the sky. And it attacks the honor of God. They do not believe in God. They do not believe that God is who the Bible says that he is. They reject the biblical concept and doctrine of God. And they twist it and they change it into their own ideas. If they truly feared God and truly believed in God, then they would have a bit more respect. We can see that in society today and in families. If children respected their parents or if a man respects the authorities within his life, he'd show respect. If he doesn't, he'd mock them constantly. And we see man does not believe in God. Man mocks the biblical doctrine of God and therefore he blasphemes against that God and makes a joke and makes a mockery of that very same God. And men who stand against God, men who attack the honor of God are fools. Are fools. And also reminds us as the Lord's people, we are to honor God. We're not to get caught up in this. We're not to get caught up in jokes. We can like a good joke. We can enjoy a good joke, but there are limitations to the subjects that we can joke about. And those limitations include God and the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What God has done, the realm of redemption and the workings of God. We're not to take the name of the Lord in vain and the third commandment comes into that. We're not to joke about these things. We can make jokes and funny statements and enjoy humor. But when it comes to joking about God as believers, that should be off limits because we honor God and we love God. And we are not of this world. We're not mocking the God of heaven. Secondly, here we see Not only does this depravity and this sin attack the honor of God, but it attacks uh, the nature of man. Sin has a devastating impact upon mankind. Why does man attack God? Well, man attacks God because sin has attacked him and has damaged fatally his relationship with God. Man is wicked because of sin. Verse 3, we see the filth. We see this in Romans 3 as well. Man's filth and man's disease of sin. Verses 1 to 2, uh, there is a reference here to total depravity. Verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. There's a total depravity here. Man in his nature, in every, every faculty, is totally depraved. Every aspect of our lives has been marred by sin. When we think of the devil, he is absolutely depraved. There is no good within him. But we can think of a nurse who, in her sinful nature, is totally depraved. Every aspect of her has been affected by sin. But yet she can still come and give you that treatment that will save your life. That does not change her state before God. That does not save her. Uh, but 
being totally depraved does not mean man cannot engage in some good works or some acts of kindness. We see that in society. But the devil himself is absolutely depraved. There is no good in him. And of course, when uh, we uh, think of Romans and we think of verse 3 here in Psalm 14, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. We know that there are those who will save our lives who are not believers. But yet the reference here is to that spiritual good, that spiritual good that earns everlasting life. We're not good. All these works cannot change the state of our soul. They cannot make us righteous. There is one who doeth good and one who was all good. And that was the Lord and is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's abominable works here. Because man has sinned, there's abominable works, verse 1. And this epidemic of sin has affected the whole of mankind. And Matthew Henry said, in singing this, let us lament the corruption of our own nature and see what need we have of the grace of God. And since that which is born of the flesh is flesh, let us not marvel that we are told we must be born again. And Matthew Henry nails this thought right to our hearts. We see the corruption of our own nature and we see the need for God's grace, firstly in salvation, but day by day in our lives to flee sin and to fight against sin and to avoid sin and also to live for God. We need the grace of God because of the corruption of our own nature. And so let us as believers realize the depravity of mankind and that we are sinners saved by grace. Let us desire the grace of God, that we can live for him, that we would not have these verses as a description of our lives, but that we would rest in the Savior alone. And then secondly, or in the main headings here, we have David's declaration to the depraved. He describes depravity, and then he makes a declaration to the depraved in verses 4 to 6. He informs sinners of their evil way. And he points out their wickedness. Verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? And they're described here as those who make or practice. Those who work iniquity. That is their aim. They eat up the people of God like bread. There is such a hatred of God that working against him and working against his people is as necessary to them as vital to them as it is for us to eat bread and meat. There's no moral conscience here about what they do. They call not upon the Lord. In verse 6, there's this implication, the Lord is not their refuge. The Lord is the refuge of the poor, but he's not the refuge of these individuals. They're in contempt to God, and they're not resting upon him. And those who do not make the Lord their refuge are in opposition to him. The wickedness is pointed out. He points out their failure as well. They have no knowledge of God. Verse 4, if they had a knowledge of God and they, by God's grace, acted on that knowledge, things would be very different. This is not just about knowing about God, but knowing God in experience, practical experience. He points out their danger as well. Verse 5, There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. The Lord is against the wicked. They cannot stand in the day of judgment. We can think of Psalm 1 where the wicked 
are just blown away like the chaff. They can't stand against God. They engage in all their wicked acts. But it is pointless. It is pointless. And so when we think of David's declaration to the depraved, it reminds us that those who sin in this world, those who hurt the people of God or persecute the people of God, they will not succeed because God is on the throne. It reminds us as well that we have a duty to declare to the depraved, to preach, to declare Christ, to point out the wickedness of this world, to point out sin. Why do a lot of individuals in this world hate the church of Christ and hate the preaching of the gospel because it points out their wickedness. It points out their sin. And that is what true preaching does. And we are to desire that and pray for that. That there would be that preaching that would point out sin, that even in our lives, that by God's grace and with grace, we would point out the sin that we see in others. We ought to be mindful also that we can sin and we can fall. And we're not to, as it were, point and have three fingers pointing back at ourselves as often is said. And we're to seek God's grace. But we're thinking here of those who are in great sin, the wickedness of the land, the wickedness that we see around us. We're to stand against that as the people of God. We're not to be immersed in it. We're to stand and be, be those who declare against it. And then finally we see David's desire for deliverance. David's desire for deliverance. This is a solemn psalm that can easily discourage the people of God when we consider the terrible wickedness of the ungodly. But David desires to encourage himself and encourage us, the Lord's people. In verse 5, he says, God is in the generation of the righteous. In verse 6, he says, because the Lord is his refuge. And we see here the Lord's people have the assurance of presence and protection. This world is depraved and those in it are depraved and sin against God. But the Lord's people have his presence. The Lord is in the generation of the righteous. The Lord is his refuge. There is a protection there. But verse 7 David desires deliverance for the people of Israel, the Lord's own people. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When the people bringeth back the captivity of his, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. And there is mention here of a return and a restoration, a releasing of prisoners and a rejoicing in the Lord. David is downcast and discouraged, but by the end of the psalm, he's praising and rejoicing in the Lord. The same is true of Psalm 13. He was downcast, and at the end, he's lifted up and rejoicing in the Lord. And why is that? Because he's focused on him. His eye is upon him. He has brought his fears, his doubts, his concerns before the Lord. And he has a glorious confidence the Lord will intervene. And dear believer then, let us have a confidence when we come to the place of prayer. 
We come to pray in a context of a world that is depraved. In a world that is wicked. In a world that is sinful. And when we pray with faith and confidence, there is no need for us to doubt the Lord will intervene in his divine purpose at his chosen time. David desired the Lord to deliver. And he had a real assurance the Lord would turn again the captivity of his people in due time. And dear believer then, there should be a desire for our deliverance. For our deliverance from this world, for our removal from this world. Do you, as the Lord's people, desire to be with him, which is far better? Christ is coming again for his people. Do we really desire such a thing to be with him, to be absent from this world and present with the Lord? In Philippians chapter 1, the apostle Paul is speaking and he says in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a street betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And so Paul has two decisions or two paths in front of him. He has a desire to be with Christ. That's what we're talking about here. This deliverance, desiring to be with our Savior. But then he says, verse 24, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. There were two paths. Being with the Lord, he desired that. It's not wrong to desire that. It's the people of God. That's our final destination to be with him. But Paul realized there's a work still to be done here on earth. And while I desire to be with Christ... My desire also is to do his will. And at that point in time, it was to remain and to help the people of God and to serve Christ and to serve his people. He had a duty on earth and both are compatible. Dear believer, let us pray and rejoice and look for our deliverance from this depraved world. But let us also realize that we have a duty here while we belong on this earth. And both desires Duty and deliverance are compatible. We desire deliverance, but we realize that will happen in the Lord's time. But while here, let me serve, let me witness, let me declare, let me glorify Christ in all things. Let me not live like the depraved of this world, but let me shine a light in my life for the Savior. May the Lord bless his word tonight for his name's sake. Amen. Amen.